Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to The Naturalist Capitalist. Uh, I haven't been doing too many episodes lately. I've been on the road, been super busy, went to Reno, and then did a road trip through California, then went down to Texas and just got home uh, yesterday afternoon. Um, and then I'm going to be busy for the next week or so, too. I might do a couple uh, streams on the road, but uh, hopefully on Friday... I will be heading out from Utah, headed back to New Hampshire. So this is probably my last stream uh, that I'll be doing from Utah. Uh, it's been great. Uh, no, you know, no spite or um, irreverence toward Utah. Just uh, really like what New Hampshire is doing. So I'll be heading back there. Um, if you're new, uh, please subscribe on Odyssey on. Um, uh, Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, all the platforms. They're listed in the description. Got links right there where you could go follow them. Anyway, for my last Utah uh, stream, I figured I'd have on a neighbor to the north in the state of Idaho. He's been on many times and actually got to meet him in person in Reno, which was great. We've known each other for about two years. It's weird when you know someone for a while and then you never actually meet them, and then you meet them in person, and you're like, oh, shit, I already know you, but this is weird. This is the first time. But anyway, it's Joe Evans. How you doing, my friend? Doing great, Reed. Doing great. It was awesome seeing you in Reno, you know, getting there for the Reno reset, you know, Friday chaos, all that uh, massive hysteria. <laughs> uh, you know, the rule to change the rule to amend the bylaw about the suspension of the candidate for – dude, I – I don't know what it is about these Ronar dudes, you know, uh, it, it's like, oh, it slow down a moment. I lost track about three uh, suspension of rules ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was rough Friday. Uh, I mean, you're not exaggerating much. It was it was like eight hours of bureaucracy. Uh, the, 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 the most hilarious part was when we voted to go to lunch and we were having like you know, trouble voting on whether or not we were going to go eat. And I was just like, this is just classical libertarians, you know, trying to create some sort of structure. It's just, it's almost antithetical to the idea of libertarianism to have any sort of structure. So it, it was kind of playing out there on Friday. It was, right. it was a I mean, of we literally spent an hour debating whether or not we were going to go to lunch for 30 minutes. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember that because there was uh then the next day, I think it was the next day we were voting on whether or not we were going to let Noda speak. So just for anyone who's not a libertarian nerd, just to explain how ridiculous this is. There was, I think it was over the chair race and none of the above is always an option that you could fill in. So there were people arguing over whether or not we should have someone argue for none of the above, even though that none of the above isn't a candidate. And so we were, uh, debating whether or not we we're going to let none of the above speak for two minutes. And we had to do a vote on it and everything. And it lasted like 10 minutes. And I was like, shit, I should have just said yes. Cause then the two minutes would already be over, but we're still here arguing over whether or not they should speak. It was pretty right? bad. <laughs> I, I, I mean, the whole thing was ridiculous on, you know, the face of it, but you're right. You know, uh, here we are, we're doing Rogers rules, uh, you know, at a libertarian conference the libertarian event and it's like well what's the process how are we going to do this you know well we got to go back was that in the bylaws no it's not in the bylaws okay was it in rogers you know um 
No, there's a bylaw rule overruling that aspect. It's, you know, and it brings you back to your military days. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually interesting because an awful lot of those people that were there with the Mises group, you know, I appreciate them. But the Ronar they were bringing were from, you know, committeeman membership games that they played, you know, as Republicans, you know. You're Republican committeeman. Yeah, you got used to running this whole process because, you know, the Republicans want to do it a very specific way, you know, and here you are in this situation and the libertarians get it over with. Why? You know, so it's like they're trying to come over and, you know, I appreciate the Republicans that have recognized that liberty is the way to do it, but they're coming over with some bad habits. And, uh, you know, it's like, slow down guys slow down guys you know i I appreciate that you understand a republican way of doing things but we don't do that here (laughs) yeah so i i consider you one of the so i i have a lot of haters out there who just you know i'm an holocaust denying anti-semitic you know far-right republican whatever the fuck they want to say i am but i you're one of the people who I consider very good friends who isn't like fully on board with the Mises caucus, but I feel like your critiques are reasonable. You're not coming from a place of derangement. Um, so what did you think about how everything went? Obviously I liked the way things went, but what, what what's your overall opinion of the election results in Reno and the new direction of the party? Yeah. Uh- Let's go ahead and hit the election results here real quick. You know, Angela got up. She did a good job. She made a speech. You know, um, the percentage she won by was nice. Uh, 69%. (laughs) I don't know if she's ever going to live that one down. Um, And I have no intention of letting her live that one down. (laughs) Uh, You know, but she got up and she actually endorsed her candidate, um, you know, uh, to run. And that was interesting because here she was, she was the chair. She had been elected the chair and she got up and she endorsed her candidate and her candidate lost to Joshua Smith. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like right out of the gate. It's like, yeah, you're not going to get everything you want and we're going to make sure you know you're not going to get everything you want, you know, before your vice chair is elected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the honeymoon phase of the relationship for the LNC, uh, executive committee, it's already on rocky footing. Now that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to do bad things. Joshua and, uh, Angela could very well come to terms and make some really good things happen. You know, they got some good support in there. Todd Hagopian got in, uh, strong Mises candidate. Uh, he's been libertarian for a long time. You know, strong support across a number of different caucuses. You know, and he's coming at it from a financial provider's perspective rather than just a bookkeeper. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's willing to do the extra work because he understands the extra work that needs to be done from a business decision process. So they can say, yeah, uh, you're not going to get the return on investment for that kind of spending. Maybe we should try something else. So I like what Todd's going to be able to bring to the table. So as far as the elections go, I'm not disappointed. Um, I think we got some good people in charge. 
I'd like to have seen a little bit more uh, camaraderie between the vice chair and the chair, you know, something where they weren't, you know, initially at uh, odds with each other. But I think overall we're doing pretty good, you know, at least as far as the election goes. Now, one of the big things, and of course, this is one of the issues that we bring up here in, um, well, it's Pride Week, right? It's Pride. And one of the big things that an awful lot of the people were screaming about was the, you know, uh, we find bigotry, you know, intolerable and whatever else the rest of the thing was. You know, and we did the switch up with the languaging on that saying, you know, uh, we support everybody's rights uh, regardless of race. Now, there were some things about that that I wasn't necessarily happy with. You know, one is, is because I like the definitive. You know, it's like, no, bigotry. It's repugnant and it doesn't match the values. Now, the way they did it with the turning, two things I was disappointed with. Yeah, and I realized Spike Cohen with his uh, negotiation did an extremely good job in the short time he had, you know, with the rewrite, with the, uh, what was it, the negotiated middle ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing he did was he put race, you know, race was not something that was in the platform anywhere mm-hmm. for any reason. You know, we didn't acknowledge race as if it was just a social construct. It was in our imagination. There was no reason to bring race into. We had ethnicity. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a couple other things, but for the most part, the libertarian platform was race neutral or race abolitionist. You know, we weren't mm-hmm. talking about it. Well, the rewrite. We now have race in our platform, so now race becomes a topic of discussion where we actually have to circle around the issue of race rather than just being able to move on with the individual and our much smaller groups. Um, yeah, the other aspect of it is the change opens up that whole concept of separate but equal. Now, this is one of those things that the Hoppians love. You know, It's like, I want my covenant community. I, I, I want my separatist community where people like me can be like me, and uh, I'll support everybody else's rights as long as they're doing their rights somewhere else. Yeah, so I, I'll uh, bring up, let's see, I think I got it on the screen there now, should. Right. Yeah, this, so this is the new one. This is the new one. So it used to, so now it says, uh, this is 3.5 rights and discrimination. Libertarians embrace the concept that all people are born with certain inherent rights. Uh, we reject the idea that a natural right can ever impose an obligation upon others to fulfill that right. We uphold, and, and I think this is where it used to say yeah. we condemn bigotry as irrational and repugnant. Now mm-hmm. it says we uphold and defend the rights of every person, regardless of their race, ethnicity, or any other aspect of their identity. Government should neither deny nor abridge any individual's human right based upon sex, wealth, ethnicity, creed, age, national origin, personal habits, political preference, or sexual orientation. Members of private organizations retain their rights to see whatever standards of association they deem appropriate, and individuals are free to respond with ostracism, boycotts, and or other free market uh, other free market solutions. So. Yeah. Um, so 
I see what you're saying. Now the word race is here, but this is saying regardless of their race, right? So it's yeah. not really an inclusion of race into the platform so much. Yeah, it, it, it's one of those things. It's mentioned. And mm-hmm. from an aspect, you know, 1970s forward, one of the big things we've been trying to do is get race out of policy, get race out of government, you know, get uh, quotas, race quotas, you know, out of the policy procedures, you know, uh, shift this idea that government needs to send money to a specific area because of a specific demographic quality, mm-hmm. you know, outside of, you know, like one of the things that went through Congress here not that long ago was the idea of helping impoverished communities. You know, uh, are we going to send money to the community because it's impoverished? Are we going to send it because it's got a demographic outside of, you know, below the poverty line for the region they're in? You know, how are we going to set this quota up? You know, sending people to college. College boards have state mandated quotas. You're uh, scholarships have to go to a certain percentage of individuals of this demographic and that demographic and another demographic. So we continue to see that. And that was one of the big things about the libertarian as an individual. Why are we doing quotas based on issues of birth? You know, mm-hmm. we're giving people quotas, you know, the color of the skin gives you an advantage. And that was something we've been trying to do, or the color of your skin gives you a disadvantage. You know, are you going to walk into a government office and apply for a job? And because you have the wrong color skin, the person sitting behind the desk, you're going to tell you to, you know, go head out to the red line district because that's where you're going to find housing because you're not going to get into any of the nice neighborhoods, you know, and until you look like Michael Jackson. Um, you know, so that, that's an aspect of it. Now, it's a relatively minor one. But mm-hmm. like I said, it's one of those things that the Hoppians are looking at and going, okay, okay, I, I can get behind that. The whole, yeah, separate pity. I'll support the rights, you know, not here. You know, mm-hmm. it's a lot like the KKK having a standing scholarship for members of the black community that nobody's taken in the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I support your right to be educated. Just don't be educated around here. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I think a lot of libertarians um, have kind of got this whole issue wrong because they seem to kind of, I mean, if you want to be a socially progressive libertarian, like that's totally within your oh, right. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. But, um, you know, like when I look at a lot of like these pride organizations or, you know, gay rights, like what does gay rights mean? And I look at the platform they have and it means the right to live without being discriminated against. And that, that's really like foggy language because I like I personally find, you know, someone who won't employ someone because they're gay or whatever. I think that's really stupid and weird right, and, and it, dumb it or is, whatever. It's stupid. And it, it, that's the aspect of irrational that we're talking about. Sure. It's fully qualified. It's irrational not to hire them just because you don't like some aspect of their lifestyle. Sure. From a purely capitalist aspect, it's like you're paying somebody to do a job and you're not paying somebody because of who they go home to every night. Right. I mean, I totally agree with that, but um, I also think it is the employer or the cake baker or whoever we're talking about. It is their right to 
you know, give service or deny service to whomever they want. I saw this, uh, you know, we're, you're talking about Hoppians. I saw a lot of Hoppians get this wrong during COVID, you know, because, um, I mean, give it, granted, there was a lot of corporatism and government um, pulling strings behind a lot of shit. But at the end of the day, once you start, you know, saying that we need to make it illegal for businesses to require masks or vaccines or whatever, that was getting to the point where, I mean, <laughs> you're, you know, people were endorsing civil rights from a libertarian perspective. Like, it is my civil right to go into any business I want, whether or not I'm vaccinated, where I think, you know, when you're coming at it from a property rights perspective, like, I support the rights of every individual, but those rights include freedom of association, which to me, you know, can be irrational and repugnant depending on what that person's associations are. Yeah. But I think the problem with the word bigotry is it's so subjective, right? Like there and are things is that, you know, it, it is one of those more subjective terms and it's difficult to get around for a number of reasons, you know, and it, there is the truth that when we look at it, it's like you're being a bigot. Well, what am I being a bigot about? Right. You know, am I being a bigot because, you know, the map next door uh, has been eyeing my daughter, you know, a little. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. that, they, they, there are things in which you are going to have biases and for good reason. And you're going to want to be able to approach and deal with those biases, you know, face to face and say, look, what you're doing is wrong. Now, where that starts coming into play is how they start influencing the community in such a way where it's going beyond concepts of consent, you know, where they're doing things in which, oh yeah, let's talk about this issue. One of the big things that's going around right now is this whole idea of kids at Pride Parade events, mm -hmm. okay? We've run into problems with the child drag queens. Okay. Now, we have actually gone through a certain amount of effort in the United States and commu Western communities overall in saying child beauty pageants are immoral, you know, mm -hmm. reprehensible. You know, what are we doing sending kids to child beauty pageants, sexualizing them? making, you know, six-year-old girls look like they're on the verge of 18. You know, we've said, no, no beauty pageants for kids. We're ending toddler, TRs for toddlers or whatever the show was. You know, we've taken a look at uh, Netflix, cuties. You know, as a community, as a society, as a culture, we've looked at that and went, you know, no. Yeah. We are not going to be sexualizing children. You know, pull that stuff off. Um, yet we still continue to see elements that are going in and saying, no, it's all right. It's all right. It's, mm, no, no, it's not. Because when you sexualize children, you're taking the natural progress of childhood out of the process. You're not giving the child an opportunity to be a child. You've turned them into a sex object or a play toy in the process. So as a community, right. we look at a lot of that and go, no. You know, so when we take kids 
And this is one of those things where it gets interesting. Because from one aspect, I know a lot of drag performers that are performers. They're family friendly. They get up, they do the costume, they do the lip syncing, they do the playing. You know, it's not like you show up at the drag strip show with your eight-year-olds as an introduction to the gay community. Like, come on, man. We know better than this, you know. Um, Mm. You're exposing them to an aspect of adult culture that they're not in a developmental stage to appreciate. Yeah, and it's one of those things. There are drag queens I know, drag queens that have come out in public and said, you know, some of the things that they're seeing hit the news right now, you know, as drag queens, as performers, as entertainers, they're going, no, nah, not cool, man. Um, and they're seeing an off, and we're seeing a lot more of that is we're doing our best to give children the opportunity to be children. And, yeah. So what uh, you're, what you're getting at is it's not a bigoted position if consent is being taken out of the picture. It's not bigoted to be against this type of stuff because of logical uh, reasoning, you know, pertaining to children or whatever. Is that kind of what you're getting at here? Or? Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Essentially, um, you know. Hey, John. Yeah, yeah. We get it. We get it. No, but it's about consent culture, straight up. It is about consent culture. When we get around to doing a number of things you know are you involving children are you introducing them into a cultural aspect that they're not prepared to get involved in are you sexualizing the situation you know the second you're sexualizing the situation it's no there's no longer you're taking the aspect of consent because one of the things that almost all of us agree on universally 18 it's the cutoff line you know romeo and juliet laws in a lot of states yeah we get it three up down you know but you're over 25, 18's the cutoff everywhere in the United States. You know, here you are, you're doing sexualized drag performances, strip shows, you know, for 12-year-olds, 13. It's man, come on, slow down. Yeah. So, I mean, I think every sane person would agree with that. Like, I, I hope so. I mean, we're living in a crazy world now. But... When it comes to let, let's put something in a little bit more like a grayer area. So condemning bigotry overall is irrational and repugnant. Like some like you and I have an aversion to like Christian fundamentalism, right? Like I think you'd agree with me. Yes. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. But some people would consider that bigotry and I wouldn't because like, I mean, if you're just like standing on the corner with a bullhorn screaming about how everyone who doesn't believe the same thing as you is going to burn for eternity. Like I I personally think that's kind of irrational and repugnant, but I also realize it's pretty subjective. Like a lot of people would think some of my beliefs are irrational and repugnant. So, you know, if people don't want to associate with me because I don't believe in Jesus and if I don't want to associate with certain people because they're Muslim fundamentalists or Zionist Jews or whatever they are, like, I don't see an issue with that. And I just think that the word bigotry is so subjective that it could be conflated to 
you know, mean any of those sorts of things. What are, what are your thoughts on that? And, and this is one of those things where in a certain sense, I do have to agree with the Hoppians on uh, that point. You know, you start getting into that situation where your community is revolving around a certain set of ideals. You know, you get 200, 300, 400 people in a small town. You know, there's really only one church to which everybody belongs in. Somebody comes in, you know, we got communities out here in eastern Idaho, 500 people. You know, there's only one church in town and happens to be an LDS church. Somebody decides they want to come in and settle in and they like it because of the prices and they like it because of the atmosphere. And then they buy a house and they get in and they realize, you know what, I'm never going to get a job here because they only hire from inside the church. Mm -hmm. You know, so now you got somebody who just spent, you know, quarter of a million dollars on a house and they're in a community where there isn't an open store on Sunday. And they don't understand why the entire town's gone quiet like, you know, Stepford. And it's like you start to realize that there are some places where it's just the bias for internal, you know, ideals, you know, the community small enough where they can actually get away with doing that and still be functional because everybody's of common agreement. Now, you'll see people in that community pick up and go, you know what, I'm sick of this stuff. I'm going to move to the big town. I'm going to move to the big city. That's where you start running into the difference between whether or not you got a nice small covenant community sitting out in the, you know, that does their agriculture thing and everybody goes to church on Sunday and whether or not you're looking at a larger environment where you got, you know, 800,000 people, you know, living in quadplexes right next door to each other where the only community activity happens to be either at the park or the mall. You know, the aspect of how flexible you need to be with regards to cultural customs changes dramatically. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying, you know, everybody should go out and infiltrate these small little farm communities, you know, like the Quakers and say, I'm going to make you all, you know, I'm tired of you guys being Quakers. I want you to all be Southern Baptists now. You know, you're going to go, yeah, ma'am, that's not the way that works here. Mm-hmm. Um so you got to pay attention to what's going on as far as cultural environment goes. Yeah. So I would I would agree. I mean that there are certain cultures that are friendlier toward liberty, like they're they're going to oh, yeah. cultivate you know a more libertarian society. But I don't necessarily think they should be part of the platform. So like, um, you know, I I think a strong nuclear family is probably more conducive to liberty. You know, like the idea of having good parents and, uh, you know, a good uh, family household or whatever is going to tend to raise people who are going to be more financially secure, whatever. But I don't think that needs to be in the platform. Nothing about like we support the idea of, you know, whatever. Like, so I I just think that they're not necessarily the same thing. And that's an interesting topic. Let's go ahead and talk about the nuclear family aspect. Sure. Nuclear family. We did a good job. I think we hit an all-time high of like 60% back in the 1950s. You know, um, everybody coming back from the war, veterans were given land, you know, they were able to bring in their wives. You know, we were still dealing with that situation where single women weren't able to open their own bank accounts, married women, you know, weren't able to own their own property. Yeah, and here we have a bunch of veterans coming back from war. They got land, you know, and everything set up. And we see this 
environment that's right for creating a nuclear family. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mom, dad, two and a half kids, the dog in the suburbs out there in the middle of nowhere because everybody's got an acre plot and we got enough room to spread everybody out. You know, fast forward 40 years, we've doubled in, you know, what we've at least doubled in population, you know, and because like out here out west, you know, we have a lot of federal land that we can't actually build on. Back east, you've already been crowded in, you know, and a lot of the areas that are still wilderness, still wild, like there's a reason you don't build houses. There's reasons you don't build towns out there. You know, those towns are as big as they're going to get. And so we had this time frame where a nuclear family was very set up to do the whole um, plug and play. You know, you were a veteran. You could pick up. You could move anywhere in the United States. Somebody would have a job waiting for you when you got there. You settled down. You settled in with your family. And you did what, you know, the little nuclear family did. The little self-contained, you know. And here we are later. And we start seeing families going back to this multi-generational thing because as much as we wished it was possible, unless the environment is perfect, you know, mom, dad, and the two kids is no longer a plug and play. You can't just pick them up and move them halfway across the nation and expect them to just fit right in anywhere USA. You know, they don't have the network. They don't have the support. They don't have mom, you know, to watch the kids while both you know, grandma to watch the kids while both mom and dad go to work. Mm-hmm. You know, so we've seen the decline in the nuclear family. It's gone down to what? I think we're down to 20% right now as a result. You know, and part of it is because we've done away with the extended family. We no longer have that family support network. That's true. We've, yeah. We've written laws that made it illegal for grandma to watch the kids while mom's at work. You know, we no longer can do daycare at work. There's no longer a daycare at work. you got to put them into a licensed daycare center. And most of those licensed daycare centers, you know, cost minimum wage just to be able to put the, you're paying minimum wage just to keep your kid in the daycare center. Mm-hmm. You know, so this whole nuclear family plug and play, it's, it, we've killed it. We've literally yeah. taken the environment that was perfect for it and created an environment that was positively toxic and we're losing the nuclear family aspect so we need to get back to extended families community community support i saw somebody uh do a thread about that last night i can't remember who it was was it you or someone but it was that exact point about the extended family i I don't remember who it was Uh, i I've, i've done threads like that a time or two um you know but it's one of those things okay utah fundamentalists (laughs) fundamentalists <laughs> we've got it, our, yeah. our our nuclear families are extended families in utah <laughs> right right the nuclear families you need to be careful which community you're coming from because some of those uh family trees look like telephone poles <laughs> we're, we're a christmas wreath <laughs> or a christmas wreath but, but one of the things is the lds church Okay. It is one of the most family oriented churches, you know, regardless of what else you believe about it, it mm-hmm. is extremely family oriented. If you are a member of the church, you can pick up and move anywhere else in the United States. Yeah. And there will be a church, a ward, a congregation. They're ready with open arms saying, come here and be with us. We have a job waiting for you. Tell you what, go talk to Jim over it. You know, the, what's your skills? You know, you do compute, go talk to Jim over at, you know, so-and-so. 
and you know, less than 24 hours after you sat down in pews at the church for the first time and the bishop introduces himself to you, you got a job. It's a good job with perks. And now you're part of the community. So it's like mm -hmm. that's one of the aspects of community, you know, the church that the Catholics have been missing out on. You know, because it's like one Catholic, you know, doesn't necessarily agree with another. But the LDS church, anywhere in the United States, anywhere in the world, you can come from Zimbabwe. Show up, sit down in a pew 24 hours later, you got a job working at Deseret Industries. No other organization in the United States does that for people. Mm -hmm. Not even the VA these days. You know, you get done as a veteran, you get out, you start doing your transition, the ability for you to walk into a job. No, it doesn't happen. You got to go through a transition phase. You got to get normalized. You got to get re-citizenized. You know, um, we got this government program that we're going to have to send you through before we can give you a job. So that, you know, the subcontractor that's a friend of a friend, you know, gets his money from the VA in order to re-educate you and send you through voc rehab. Now, the church, you sit down in a pew, you got a job. To, you know, they don't play games. Right. That's one of the reasons why they're successful. And it's people like you and me. Yeah, we grew up in those communities, you know, and there were times when we didn't necessarily have things going on in our lives in relationship to the church because of things that were said, done, you know, that hidden layer of drama, trauma, things that, you know, alienated us from the church. Yeah. So we're going, yeah, I'm, I'm not real keen on going back. But at the same time, the ones who never experienced the trauma like you and I did in relationship to fundamentalism, you know, when they're in there, they believe. Yeah. And they're there for the people that, you know, are part of that community. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, regardless of whatever disagreements we might have, there are a lot of lessons to draw from religious communities. And, um, you know, I think uh, a mistake that a lot of, like atheist libertarians make is just totally decrying any sort of religious, religious or cultural identity that people have, because in a lot of ways, those religious or cultural identities, you know, they, they're actually a substitute for the state. If you get rid of those things, then people tend to gravitate more toward the state, which is not what we want. Like I would much rather people be part of the LDS church than, you know, on welfare or whatever. So it's like people got to kind of weigh their options with what's going on, you know? Uh, and, and that's one of the things, a lot of the stuff. Yeah. They got their 10% tie. That's part of the things, but an awful lot of people that are part of volunteers, you yep. know, you got the community gardens, you know, you got the church orchard that everybody goes to, you got the facilities, Deseret industries, you know, you can go volunteer with the organization, you know, they're always willing to help out. And this is all voluntarism. It's not a mandate. It's, you know, right. Sure. You may have Bishop coming by every so often going, you know, sort of strongly recommended at this point that, you know, you might want to participate a little bit more. Uh, but as a general rule for the most, most of them, you know, they're willing to extend that level of uh, what, you know, gratitude or it's not, it's the other side of things. Yeah, you know, where 
the gifting, you know, that comes with being part of the community. It's like, we understand you're having hard times right now. So here's a little something to get, keep you going until you're actually back on your feet. Um, you know, you see that in a lot of aspects. You know, I remember growing up getting, you know, the ward had put together the Christmas package. You know, we get the ring at the doorbell and walk out, you know, and there were Christmas gifts for us. You know, so it was the community that was always sticking up and making sure that the children within the community, the children within the church were getting taken care of, regardless of the situation with the parents. And so mm -hmm. you were seeing an awful lot of this. And yeah, that's one of those aspects of bias and bigotry, you know, that we deal with on a certain basis. You know, mm -hmm. I have my trauma associated with the church, which prevents me from going back to the church. Because aspects of things that happen in the church trigger things in me, just like they do with you. And, you know, several of our other friends that are now agnostic, atheist, libertarian, you know, whatever. Uh, but for those who never experienced that aspect that, kicked, that sent us away, they're there. And they are believers. Mm -hmm. And they're there as part of the community. They're always stepping up, you know. Unfortunately, you know, there's an awful lot of that at the same time that says, you know, maintain enough individual thoughts so that you don't drink the Kool-Aid when the bishop decides to do a Jim Jones on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, let's let's talk about your uh, campaign a little bit because okay. we're, we're way into this now. But um, what I know you just so this was the first year there was a libertarian primary. Um well, in a long time, in a long time. I think it was like 2014 or something. We had some, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, mm -hmm. um, or maybe even further back than that. It's been a long time. Um, so we were going back and taking a look at some of the things associated with that and saying, you know, hey, um, so we ran the primary because we actually had two people apply for the gubernatorial nominate, nomination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they wanted to be governor, so they decided to run as governor, and they got involved in that whole process. And for the first time, we actually had a libertarian primary that was run on the seventeenth. You know, you know, it's funny. We actually had something like about twelve hundred people show up and pick up libertarian ballots during a primary. You know, first time in a while, and it's like they sit. You know, they're walking in, they're walking up, and they're going, "Okay, I need me a ballot." And the person who's there going, okay, well, you're unaffiliated, so you can pick any of these three different ones. You can choose the Republican, the Democrat, the Constitutional, or the Libertarian, or just an unaffiliated. They go, wait, wait, there's a Libertarian and a Constitutional ballot I can pick up and pick one of their candidates? And the interesting thing is both of them were gubernatorial races that were being challenged, which was why we had to do primaries for the libertarian constitutionalists in the first time forever. Um, and a lot of this was also in reaction to just the total chaos that was our GOP primary. You know, we had East Coast contributors calling in, donating money to some of our establishment politicians going, we're paying enough attention to what's going on in Idaho to realize that some of your populists aren't going to be in our best interest. So, you know, he, here's a hundred thousand to your campaign. 
you know, do something to make sure that you get elected ahead of whoever it is that you're running against, you know, in the Republican primary. Mm-hmm. There was an awful lot of attention going on on that, Fred. Um, so is there a Democrat this time or is it just you and the Republican? There is a Democrat, uh, Kaylee. Uh, it's it's interesting because the Democrats in this particular race very rarely pull more than 25 percent. Mm hmm. Okay, so there's 75% out there that's open for, you know, basically whoever runs. And right now there's only three of us. So Kaylee will probably pull about 25% being a young woman still in college, working on her poli-sci degree, you know, married, which is good in the state of Idaho. state of Idaho likes married women running for office. So is she kind of catering to the Republicans a little bit? Is she like not wanting to take all their guns and not wanting an $80 minimum wage, or is she just going for it? This, this is Idaho. Uh, and it's really funny because Idaho, your Idaho Democrat is still further to the right than a California Republican. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> it's funny when a California Republican moves to Idaho and goes, yeah, we're in a red. Wait, this state may be a little too red for me. <laughs> um, you know, so... I have yet to really see where she comes out with a lot of these issues, but it's one of those problems. You know, the way I look at it, all of us are looking at the same end result. Okay. We all want to make sure that we have money to take care of our kids. We all want to make sure that we have a house over our head, a roof over our head so that we have a place for our kids to go to sleep. We want to make sure they have food in their bellies. You know, we want to make sure that they get a good education, regardless of how that education comes about. You know, whether that's via school choice, whether we're homeschooling because we don't trust the public schools or whether or not we trust the public schools enough to provide some basic education while we finish filling it out personally. You know, we all want the same things, regardless of whether we're libertarian, constitutionalist, Democrat, Republican, straight up communist. You know, we all want an end to war. You know, all of these things are things that we all want. The question is, is how do we get to it? Mm hmm. You know, do we go the Republican way where we got a bunch of individuals saying, you know, we got some smart guys and they're going to make sure that you guys are taken care of by making the right decisions for you. And we got the Democrats going, the best way to do this is to create government agencies to make sure that the people are taken care of. You know, we got the constitutionalists going, we need to get back to God. You know, yeah. you, you got the communists going, you know, unionize, unionize, you know, libertarians are going, let's just get government out of the way. Mm -hmm. You know, if we just stop trying to manipulate the market, if we just stop trying to regulate industry, if we just let people build on their own character, build on their own, you know, um, personalities. You know, it's the word of mouth that says this guy's a good guy and this guy's a not so good guy. This guy's the guy you need to do this. And if he's not available, well, this guy's OK. Just don't use the other guy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where it becomes part of the relationship building, it becomes part of the community building. You know, you know the people in the community that are capable of doing the things you need done for you. You know, you go down to the local ace hardware where the person's, you know, it's uh, locally owned, locally managed. You know, they're outside of the franchise of a being Ace Hardware. You know, just like the IGA. You know, it's homegrown, home owned. It's home managed, for good or bad. But you know the owners because they live in your community. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not going over to Lowe's or the hardware store where all the capital, where all the profits are going back to someplace else. You're not going shopping at Walmart where everything ends up back in Arkansas by the end of the day. You know, you're shopping in homegrown community stores, homegrown community shops. You're localizing and decentralizing the supply chain. Grocery, oh, groceries right now. God, it's going through the roof. We're losing uh, food production plants all across the U.S. And we're not doing anything about it. You know, 10 miles from here, I got a guy who's growing cattle who can't sell cattle straight to the consumer. He's got to sell it to a middleman who's going to sell it to somebody who's going to take it to South Dakota to process it, turn it into hamburger just to ship it back to Walmart and put it on the shelves here in my own community. Why? How much is getting lost in that process? How much time is getting wasted? How much labor's getting wasted? Yeah. So what are the... He's going to get in his refrigerated truck, drive it halfway across the country, and at the end of the day, he's going to get taxed 30% on what capital he did manage to make after he spent all that money on gas taxes. Yeah. So what uh, what are the top priorities for Idaho that you want to influence right now like what would you say are the most important let's say the top three for idaho residents Uh, one of the big things i think is an issue right now is marijuana legalization yeah especially medical you know we spend three million dollars a week driving across state lines to an out-of-state dispensary to buy marijuana products you know and then drive back Yeah, and everything that's downstream from that, the production, the farming, the agriculture that's associated with creating the marijuana that we spend three million a year on or three million a week on. Um, Yeah, and that's also going to reduce medical costs because we're no longer running people on opium for pain management programs. You know, we're using other means uh, for stress management, post-traumatic stress injury related treatments. Uh, So marijuana decriminalization stuff is a big one. Uh, Idaho is fantastic on second amendment rights, you know, so that one's not a big deal. We have some of the most generous, um, lack of gun, lack of gun control, uh, in the United States right now. Uh, nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we still got one thing we need to do and that's make sure that 18 year old girls can carry guns on campus. We're, we're not quite there yet. Uh, but that is a big issue for me. You know, simply because of consent issues. You mm-hmm. know, I like the idea that, you know, a 21 year old girl can meet a 21 year old man on campus and they're both carrying it. <laughs> yep. You know, uh, Jennifer, right, gun rights, non negotiable. Um, so that's another big one. Um, What's the, uh, how's the. I have to do. Bodily autonomy is a big one, and that's Mm -hmm. all across, you know, and that goes back to the marijuana thing, you know, being able to choose your own medicine, being able to decide whether or not you want a vaccine, decide whether or not you want to wear a mask, Mm -hmm. you know, the ability as a property owner, whether or not, you know, somebody who's of a particular, who has a particular pattern of behavior may or may not be part of your association. You know, if you want to shop at Winco, you got to wear the mask when you go into Winco. You know, if you don't, there's some place just down the street, you know, Albertsons will take you without the mask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you end up developing your own networks as far as shopping and who wants to support. And at least that's not something that you're born with. Right. Yeah. Right. 
Your choice to wear a mask will decide who you can go shopping with. It's not like because of the color of skin you were born with is deciding where you can go shop or which water fountain you can use. You know, because that is choice. Mm-hmm. You know, you can morph your behavior in order to accommodate working with a group of people that you want. You know, if store A demands you wear a mask, but you like shopping at store A because they have better quality goods, you're probably going to put on the mask. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> what's know? the... Uh... How is the potato industry faring with all this shit? Has that been affected by supply uh, chain actually, issues or anything? Actually, it was. Uh, last year, we ran into an issue. Uh, trucks weren't available in order to run all the potatoes. So literally, we had entire potato farms that went through the harvest process, and then they just dumped the potatoes. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. Volunteers. It was funny because we actually had volunteers drive up from Texas to load potatoes in the back of their you know, vans because the people who had purchased them weren't actually going to pick them up and use them. Yeah, keep in mind, one of the biggest uh, consumers of potatoes at the time was McDonald's. So here we are. Everybody's on lockdown. Everybody's eating at home because they can't go anywhere. McDonald's is not going to go through nearly enough potatoes that they purchased because they hadn't expected the lockdowns and the epidemic. So we got potatoes that are just sitting out in the field. Meanwhile, we got people down in Texas who are going hungry because supply chains busted. We uh, sent out an all call saying, look, you know, the potatoes, they're sitting here. Come pick them up. So we had people drive up huge trucks up from places like Texas and New Mexico, pick up Idaho potatoes straight from the dump yard, you know, just off the farm, driving back to Texas for food banks. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, there's been an aspect of the supply chain with regards to that. Um, but for the most part, our shelves, you know, except for running out of toilet paper, we haven't been hit real hard. You know, in most of Idaho communities, simply because at the end of the day, we are pretty close to the processing and we are pretty close to the food source. You know, we almost always have fresh food somewhere. Uh, a lot of it ends up in food banks at the end of the day. So even though we're not buying it, the food's still getting used, it's still getting consumed. So we've been lucky, mm-hmm. you know, on that aspect. But it's one of those things where I look at Thomas Massey's Smart Act and say, you know what? We can shorten the supply chains. We don't need to consolidate all of this food production in, you know, a food processing plant in Louisiana and another one in South Dakota and, you know, the egg farm up in Minnesota that just got burnt down. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we can actually distribute smaller uh, community oriented that just provides for the local community, you know, uh, save some on the economy of scale, save some of the risk and be able to handle a lot of that locally. So for me, that's one of my big things going to Congress is making sure that Thomas Massey's SMART Act uh, actually goes into effect and becomes permanent. You know, that yeah, way that doesn't value- it have remarkably yeah. few co-sponsors right now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that way, the guy who is raising grass-fed beef just down the street from me can, you know, I can call him up and say, hey, you know, you got a quarter I can buy, you know, uh, who's who's the butcher that's actually processing your meat for you? You know, am I going to be able to go to him and pick up fresh hamburger? You know, that way I don't have to wait for it to go to South Dakota, get processed just to come back to sit on the shelves for a week. Yeah, I remember in uh, 2020 when he introduced that, 
he was saying there were going to be massive shortages in beef supply and you know general (laughs) agricultural needs and and all that shit and you know here we are (laughs) you know should have listened but yeah, but that that's one of the big things for me is I want to make sure that Thomas Massey's Smart Act isn't just the temporary solution he's proposed, but make it permanent, be able to turn food sovereignty back over to the states so that the states are looking out for each other and the communities are able to take care of each other. Yeah. So the incumbent Republican, he got a like, is he running for re-election or is it a new guy that's come up? He's running for re-election, you know, and this he's already served two terms. Um okay. Matter of fact, I think uh, I ran to replace him in the state Senate seat when he accepted the nomination to run for Congressional District 1 four years ago, or six years ago. No, it's four years. God, it's all running together on me. Four years ago, he ran for that seat. Two years ago, he was the incumbent. I challenged him two years ago, and here I am again challenging him again for the second time. Um, and this time it's pretty much the exact same race, a libertarian, the incumbent and a Democrat who were running, uh, Rudy Soto was an interesting candidate to run against. That's real interesting running against a conservative Democrat. Cause you know, you, you sitting there and you're listening to their talking points and they're going, um, yeah, no, a- absolutely not. Our library should not be allowing people to serve porn on them. Why? Why? Mm. You know, and the ACLU is going, um, cause, cause, uh, yeah, there's reasons. It, it's First Amendment. That, I mean, you got a Idaho Democrat going, yeah, no, nah, I'm, I'm not on board with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and you listen to him. Rudy was good. Uh, he was a veteran like myself, National Guard, but you know, at least he took time to serve. Um, I'm not sure where Kaylee is on that situation as far as veteran status goes. Um, but you know, she's young, she's smart. She's working on a college degree right now and, uh, really looking forward to getting her on the debates with her and myself and Russ. Yeah. So are you, uh, are you well poised to pull well enough to get into the debates or do you not need to pull well, or how does that all work? Uh, I'm actually doing pretty good as far as getting poised. Uh, my big thing right now is make sure I get the donations necessary to say I've been raising capital. In fact, I am on this podcast with you right now. Represent social media contact and capability. Joe, have you been doing speaking engagements? Yes, I've been on podcast with the Natural Capitalist. I've been on podcast with Cajun Libertarian. You know, I've been in news articles associated with marijuana legislation or delegislation here in the state of Idaho. Yes, Joe's been active. So I stand a pretty good chance of making it one more time in, you know, making this debate just like I did two years ago. So, um, and most of us just being in the right place at the right time. Right. Okay. Um, I'm going to bring your, uh, we'll see if we can do this. Share, share screen, share screen. And we want uh, Joe Evans. So here's your website right here. Um, where yeah. can people go here to, uh, where, where, so you need donations. Is that what's yeah, up right now? A white donate button up there in the corner. Right there. See that everybody yeah. donate. And that'll take so, me, take you straight to the fundly site. Perfect. And, uh, 
how many donations do you need in order to get onto the debate? Well, right now, if you actually go to the donation site, it's a, uh, I'm at about $800 right now as far as donations. I got a few others that are going in. Um, but a lot of it, I think 5,000 puts me in the running. Okay. You know, I didn't need that uh, last time because I had the news coverage. I had the podcast. I had the social media influence to be able to say, you know what? Joe's a libertarian candidate. He's reasonably well-spoken. Let's go ahead and invite him on. So I was able to get at least three or four of uh, different news organizations that said, you know, libertarian, let, let's open it up. Let's talk about what the other options are besides the duopoly. Right. Yeah. So, guys, this is just, uh, let's see, this is Idaho Joe for the letter for Congress.org. That's where you can go. Uh, that is linked in the description. Make sure you go and help Joe out with the uh, donations and let's get him over the top, whatever he needs. Um, what else do you need people to do to help your campaign? Are you looking for volunteers for door uh, knocking volunteers? You know, I uh, just got uh, John Dion. He's uh, we're working out how he can help as a campaign manager, making sure that I dot my I's and cross my T's as we're moving forward, you know, getting some other people involved in the process. Uh, we got a big event on the 11th. We'll be doing a uh, pro-peace rally on the Capitol steps uh, morning of the 11th. So we'll be able to go stop sending our kids to die for corporate profits and, you know, uh, spend our money here at home, you know, or better yet, give our money back. Um, right. <laughs> you know. I mean, yeah, we, we got an awful lot of people in the libertarian movement that just be happy if the tax money was spent here in the United States, even though the real libertarian motivation the real libertarian move is no don't take the people's money at all right let them choose where in their community it gets spent um yeah i always i always laugh at you know it's almost hard to have pity for left-wingers like and i don't mean shit libs i mean like good true like left-wingers who care about you know people or whatever when they see the money that they want to be spent on universal health care or free education or whatever, and they see it go to, you know, funding a proxy war in Ukraine instead. It's hard to feel bad for them because they're just like, why didn't you do what I wanted you to do with the money you stole from me? It's like, well, <laughs> I don't know why you think they stole it from you. And <laughs> they know better than you how your money needs to be spent. And it's better spent killing Russians in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Uh, World War Three is not in my best interest, man. Uh, I don't. Maybe yours. I get. I get that it's in yours. Uh, you know, Sleepy Joe. But uh, no, World War Three is not in my best interest. Please stop doing that. Yeah. You know? uh, is the incumbent? Has he? Because uh, the Republicans, more than the Democrats, at least, have been a little bit sane on Ukraine. Is he one of the sane ones, or is he insane? Uh. He he's one of those that's interesting. The reason why is because he comes from an ass. He comes from the populist side of things here in the state of Idaho, mm -hmm. you know. And we've been seeing that populist side continue to deteriorate. Uh, he was one of those that got into a little bit of trouble with the January sixth thing. The day after, I think he got into trouble because he tried to bypass the metal detector going back into the Capitol after 
things. Okay. And uh, got into a little tussle with one of the cops running the uh, metal detector. Sumi was carrying or trying to carry and was trying to get past it with a gun for whatever reason. I mean, he's in the cat anyway. Uh, but it's one of those things. He was one of those who was on the house floor going, oh, my God, they're attacking us. When he is literally one of the individuals that could have stood up, walked out and said, hey, guys, how you doing? Yeah, I'm here on your side. Let, let's let's go talk. You know, let's have a sit down. You know, instead he was behind the locked doors, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things. He's not a veteran. You know, he did real estate sales here in the state of Idaho before he became a politician. Yeah, you know, so it's like, you, I know he's missing some of the key things about what's going on. You know, and people talk, well, he's about family values. Uh, yeah, he enjoyed family values so much. His wife divorced him while he was on the campaign trail because he was screwing his campaign manager. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love nice. you, Ross. And, and I agree. It's, it's good to be human sometimes. But, uh, you know, if you're going to claim to be part of the values, you got to actually live the values. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One nice thing about being a libertarian is like, you live the values. Um, I'm going to go do what I'm going to do. But you do you. I'm going to make sure you can do you. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So it, a lot of it is Russ isn't a bad guy. Neither is Kaylee. You know, it's just both of them want to do it the Republican way or the Democrat way. Yeah. And that means trust in people, not yourselves, to do the right thing with your money that they took from you. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the day, that's what the problem is, is we keep giving money to people who think they know better how to spend it than we do while we're scrambling. Yeah. Well, everyone, I'm going to put the, uh, let's see if I can make this work. There it is. Go to Idaho Joe. The number four, congress.org. If you want to volunteer, volunteer. If you can donate, donate. Uh, if you can just share stuff on social media, do that. Uh, kind of goes without saying, but you have my full endorsement, Joe. Um, I Thank wish you, you luck in the race and hope everything goes as well as it can. I will. It will. You know, we're feeling good. We know we're coming off the, you know, we're in the middle of, Everything going to hell, and right now everybody wants change. Yeah, the only way that we're going to see things rebound is to see change. And that means getting rid of the duopoly. You know, people need new faces. They need new thought processes. They need new ideas. And they need to be able to fix things with their own hands. they got to stop trusting somebody else to fix it for them. Yeah, and that's what I'm there for. I'm there to make sure you have the ability to fix it for yourself without the government coming in and saying, no, if you try fixing it, we're going to shoot you. Just like the Evaldi police tried to shoot. Anyway, that's another yeah. issue. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it is another issue, but it's the same issue. I mean, at this point, after the last two years with what's going on in Ukraine, uh, with the COVID restrictions, with the supply chain yeah. breakdown, with the police arresting parents for trying to save their kids from a crazed shooter, if at this point you don't realize that you need to take ownership and do things yourself and not rely on the government. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what to tell you, but support Joe. Joe's my friend. He's great. He's uh, you know, you can go watch past episodes. He's been on with me and Justin O'Donnell and you can even, I actually had him on my show two years ago when he was running the first time. So 
and go check that out too. We've uh, it's been a good journey and um, yeah. Best of luck, Joe. Anything else you want to throw out there where people can help you or anything else you want to say? No, most of it is just get out, contact me, contact my campaign manager, volunteer, donate, help us put up signage, make sure I got gas money to go to events in your town or into wherever, you know, so we can talk to the people and understand their needs. So that when we go to Washington, you are being 100% represented, represented. Yeah, and at the end of the day, family, friends, and community. Because that is what's going to get you through. Not government. Your family, your friends, community. Build where it counts. All right, there we go. Once again, everyone, if you're new, please subscribe to the channel. I might be doing a show this weekend on the road on my way back to New Hampshire. Uh, and when I get back to New Hampshire on Let's see. It's Wednesday. I think it's the 22nd. I'm going to be speaking at Porkfest about the government's war on the working man. A lot of stuff we've been talking about here. Uh, and then I'll be doing a show, uh, a, uh, a speech on Thursday talking about why I am moving back to New Hampshire. So if you're in New Hampshire and you're going to Porkfest, make sure you come for Wednesday and Thursday, Wednesday at five o'clock, Thursday at noon to hear me speak. And I will catch you guys on the next show. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Reed. Appreciate the time.